darlings, and welcome back to Hashtag Lumscar, the podcast dedicated to discussing the wonderful wacky world of Hashis. Here's the outro. I'm your host, Lalo Miyasha, giving an introduction to the second half of our discussion of the manga's 10th omnibus volume. As mentioned in our intro to the previous episode covering the first half of the volume, we ended up recording our discussion of the volume in two distinct recording sessions, each staggered about a month apart, and I felt because it was clear that the two halves were recorded separately and distinctly, and since the total one time would have ran rather long of combined together, I thought it would make sense to release and treat these as two separate episodes. And our discussion this time is still in itself a interesting mix of different recordings, because we had originally discussed the first few chapters you're going to listen to here in this episode, the low letter travel to Parter, at the tail end of our previous recording session covering the first half of the Omnibus volume. And further still, the coverage of the remaining chapters in this volume was split down the middle yet again because of an audio mishap on a season that froze his audacity during our discussion of the Lover Team to Barter. Which is why you're not going to hear AC's comments on the second half of that story because that audio was lost. Though I did my best to cut around to retain as much as my thoughts and analysis of the chapter as possible. Just a heads up of like some audio editing things I had to do with that. But all this is just to say that this episode is it's still kind of a Frankenstein of different recordings, which is why you may hear some differences in the audio sound during different parts of it. However, I think the sum of the parts makes for a very excellent episode, a very excellent discussion of the chapters included in the second half of the Ten Diamonds volume, effectively the 20th volume, of the original Tonkabon releases. And as mentioned before, because we find ourselves running long and we had to split our recording sessions for both volumes 9 and 10 and 2, I think we're likely going to release future discussions of the manga on the buses into two different episodes as well. And I think that will lead to less time-constrained recording sessions and it will hopefully be easier to edit the episodes as well and release them more reliably and regularly going forward. And with that context, uh, once again reiterated, I'm excited to welcome you guys once again back to our discussion of Yurisayatsu's 10th Omnibus Volume, wherein we're going to talk about a rather uneven collection of chapters featuring the tumultuous romances between Ryoko and Tobimoro and some talking beat spirits. Poppy love for ghost girls, giant octopus running wild in jungles, Kurama's last-ditch attempt to get laid, and even some character development for Ray. It's a wild ride as we go over some really great chapters, as well as one of the series' absolute worst. Which of these that we love and which one that we load? Well, you're just going to have to listen on to find out as we're going to go on another exciting journey into the lovely world of Yurisayatsura. Alright, so chapter 12, Love Letter Trouble Part 1 of a two-parter. Yes, so this is the return of Tom. This is another kind of Tone Mendo, Ryoko conflict chapter. And Tom has been waiting for Mendo at 6am at a bridge because every day Mendo crosses the bridge at 6am to walk his octopi. And 
Today, however, he has not shown up to walk them. It's a strange thing. Ryoko instead offers to walk them. And so Tan, unaware that Mendo isn't walking his occupied today at this time, throws his uh, dumbbell with a letter attached to it uh, up onto the bridge. And it hits one of the octopi, and Ryoko intercepts the letter. And the letter is written on cute stationery, and it's signed from Tom with, like, a heart symbol. And it says that at noon today, like, he'll be waiting for you at Mizu no Koro Athletic Land. And so Ryoko thinks, of course, this message is and for her from Tom. It's a love letter from Tom. And then the octopi who is hit with the dumbbell and has a bump on his head. He angrily throws it over the bridge and hits Tawn while he's trying to climb off the bridge. So he can't get a break. And of course, Mendo shows up then on the bridge. And the reason why he was not able to walk his occupy today at the right time was because the previous night, Ryoko had basically tricked him by like playing like a game of guess who, but really using that as an excuse to have her Kuroko like build a box around him to entrap him in there and then pour cement over him as a practical joke, quote unquote. And she tries to deny, oh my gosh, who would do such an awful thing? I mean, she's the one who did it. She knows she is. <laughs> and she, and Mendo notices the letter and she tries to hide the letter from Mendo. But Mendo is wise to her scheme and tries to ground her so that she doesn't obviously go to meet Tom, but she just blows up the bridge. She just gets her up with the blow up the bridge. <laughs> and so she goes off to meet Tom. Well, Benjo, having survived the explosion, having survived the fall of the bridge, exploding and pulling to the ground. I just hope those Arctify are okay, because we don't see them in this battle. But like he's saying that he no. won't let them go on a date over his dead body. That before this... Basically, at 10 a.m., Ryoko Kuroko come in to give him a telephone gun. You can tell this is our cell phones. Like, basically, they give him a telephone that is from Ryoko, and she's saying, like, she wants his help. And then Ryoko gets carried in by Kuroko, who are carrying her carriage, and they take uh, Taro with them. And then Lam chases after them, but they disguise the carriage as unburnable trash. And then go off in a merry way <laughs> while Ryoko tells Hitara that her brother is after her and she wants her as help to protect her. Meanwhile, Lum had the uh, challenge letter thrown in her face, so she knows where to go now, the Mizunokoji Athletic Land. And, oh, it's worth noting that Mizunokoji Athletic Land, like, this is seemingly Tone's own Athletic Land, like, on his property, because he is the Mizunokoji, so... Yeah, I guess he has his own, like, athletic land, his own, like, amusement park slash obstacle course training park. So that's interesting. But he's standing on top of a log yeah. line, which the there's a great message here that's not intended for children to elderly, and it's cut off, but it's clearly saying clumsy people are also not supposed to be doing the log line, which fits Tone to a T, which is ironic. But yeah, so Tone is standing on these logs, and the ladder that he used to climb up the log falls down because of the wind. So when he tries to disembark, he can't get down. Lum arrives and basically throws him off, so, you know, he falls down. Then Ryoko arrives and Tong just kind of <laughs> grabs onto the log so he doesn't fall down to the ground, because he doesn't want to interact with Ryoko. But then, like, the Kuroko, like, throw a 
basically lead ball a cannonball on <laughs> like his face. Ball. Yeah, like it hits his head and calls him plummet to the ground. He tries to crawl away, but Ryoko drops it, the same one on his head to paralyze him so she can get him in her arms. And he doesn't know what Ryoko's doing there. He just wanted to duel Mendo. And so he tries to explain to her that he doesn't want her interfering. He has unwavering intentions. Ryoko is misunderstanding. She actually blushes here and thinks that he is like, you know, being sincere in romantic feelings. But Ataru yeah. intercepts, kicks her out of the way, and like, Ryoko explains the situation that she wants Ataru's help to escape Mendo. And so Ataru takes this as, oh, I'll run away with Ryoko. And of course, one of the Kuroko intercepts Ataru and smashes him with a hammer. And that's suspicious. Why did one of the Kuroko do that? And so Tormund interrogates it, and it turns out that it was actually Mendo in disguise. And Ryoko instead mistakes him for one of their family's pet octopi. Obviously a joke, but it's like she really <laughs> likes being teasing with her brother. But yeah, so he's here to prevent Tone and Ryoko from going on a date, but instead he issues a challenge that Ataru takes up instead, and <laughs> the chapter ends with like Ryoko holding Tone at gunpoint. She has like a machine gun pointed at his chest. <laughs> like saying, Hey, now this is our chance, let's make our escape. <laughs> She's holding out a gunpoint to run away with her. And then, like, we have a lone sweating in the corner saying, to be continued, which is also great. Like, she's, she's literally sweating here because Yoko is holding the machine gun to talk. What I love about Ryoko is that she knows what she is. She's very self-aware. Uh, she's purposefully theatrical in every, like, intentionally theatrical in everything that she does. Um, but she does seem to favor, she does really seem to favor Tonchan yeah. as like the object of her affection and her affections are not good. I mean, I think Tone is her favorite plaything. So she yeah, likes basically. him as someone to torture and tease. In, in her own perverse way, yeah. she does like him, yeah. but not in the way that would be good for or healthy for anyone. No. <laughs> And I, something I really love here is that um, they were hiding Ataru in a, a sign that said "unburnable trash." Yeah. So I think that's that is so because in in Japan uh, it's separated into burnable and unburnable. And as you can see, Ataru is pretty indestructible. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the unburnable trash thing really suits him there. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, chapter thirteen, love letter trouble part two. Uh, and then you've got uh, first of all, you've got Lum tying up. Ataru and Ton explaining that how he's been training and trying to challenge uh, Shutaru to an actual duel. And he's just been hurting uh, and himself. You just see him failing over and over and over again because yeah. he's just. He always seems so stoic and serious, but he's such a dumbass. What a sad sack. <laughs> like, he punches a punching bag and it just hits him back in the face. He tries to kick a tree and gets his foot stuck. He tries to hammer basically a cursing doll and he pits his own dumb <laughs> and and Shutaro says okay you want to date my sister and he's going no 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 and he goes in appreciation of your determination I grant you my sister Ryoko if you can defeat me first 
which is kind of what he wanted anyway, but he really doesn't want... He doesn't want Ryoko um, at all. Ryoko. Oh. So, so it's it's kind of what he wants, but completely what he doesn't want. Uh, Ataru, of course, escapes very quickly, takes Mendo at his word, and says that if... So if Ataru defeats Shitaru, then he gets to marry Ryoko. <laughs> Which is um, some good legalese there from uh, from Ataru, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> which is pretty funny. Uh, so Ataru and Shutaru start fighting. Of course, Lum has just had enough at this stage. And there's a whole bunch of swinging logs. Yeah. Lum tries to zap Ataru, but instead zaps the log. It comes apart and <laughs> it ends up kind of knocking out both Ataru and Shutaru. <laughs> I should just call him Mendo. I don't know why I keep using his first name. <laughs> um, but as he's unconscious and Ataru isn't, he goes, okay, I've won, and then basically kidnaps Ryoko and just runs out uh, with a very angry lump behind him. Uh, Mendo comes back and hits Ataru in the face. Lum catches him. It's, it's kind of a funny sort of panel where Lum is literally holding Ataru up by the neck while still carrying Ryoko. Yeah. It looks like it's about to snap him in half. And Lum has just had enough at this point. Lum's just just wants to get out of this situation. Ryoko drops to the ground and of course falls directly on Tom and pretends to be concerned about him as she does. And then the mystery is solved in that he didn't send a letter of love, he sent a letter of challenge, but of course he wrote it on cute stationery and said, from Tom with a love heart behind and didn't even name Shutaru in the letter. Yeah. So it is basically a love letter. Everyone just says, no, this is a love letter. Even if you think it's a dual letter, it's a love letter. <laughs> so it, this kind of this, he does kind of seem to like cute things. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of uh, explored a little bit more when you, um, when his sister is introduced a little bit later on. Yeah. Uh, so, Shitaro decides to uh, fight Ton, with, and Ton is given an axe by Ryoko. The axe slips, and a whole bunch of logs get dislodged, come flying down. And uh, just Ryoko just manages to get like an axe on a chain out it of hammer like space. An anchor, yeah. She like, and I guess she's pretty strong because she tr- is throwing around this anchor and hits Ton with it. <laughs> saying watch out and ton just kind of flashes back to all of these times when ton (laughs) where ryoko was just messing with ton like you know laying pit traps for him throwing him off rocks into the beach uh when he's on like you know falling down a cliff and um she's got like a spiked club to try and help him they offer him another weapon which is a dumbbell and he actually just goes down. And it looks like he's... <laughs> the way Ryoko just goes up to him and um, closes his eyes and starts ra- laying flowers around him as if he's dead. Yeah. And and Lum points out, if he was that easy to kill, he would have died a long time ago. Very true. So it's it's a, it's a great panel where he is actually basically coat-hanging by a giant dumbbell yeah. and his eyes just kind of do glaze over. <laughs> he does he does look like he's in dire straits. Instead, he runs off with the dumbbell still around his neck and Ryoko throws grenades after him. And of course, he is basically explodes, exploding back into her arms and she is so happy. And once again, 
Shitaro, who is very, very happy just to get Ryoko out of his life, says, okay, you've earned Ryoko, there you go. <laughs> and he's just saying, I don't want her. And Lum is still amazed by the fact that he is indeed still alive. Man, the gags came flying fast and furious in this chapter. This is a really good battle chapter, honestly, because the environment of this yeah. basically sports center, like sports athletic land, like, with all these logs and how that plays into the fight, like, as obstacles that, you know, pose a threat of falling down and hitting people. Like, it's used super cleverly. It's used for really cool dramatic effect in the action. And, of course, the weaponry and how that's used is also pretty fun as well. And, of course, like, the fact, yeah, again, that Ryoko can just, like, throw grenades and swing anchors and all this crazy stuff is, makes it so fun and chaotic. Like, I really appreciate this a lot. And this does feel like another one of these type of, like, kind of battle chapters that are, like, a precursor to kind of the gag battle comedy we'll see in Ronda. Yeah, it's, it's she's definitely finding her feet when she's drawing these rather indulgent battle scenes here and like ataru plays a very minor role here he's just kind of there um and he adds to the chaos but i think in this in this case whenever ton's involved ryoko is even more chaotic than ataru is especially because she seems to have access to high explosives absolutely (laughs) okay now we're up to chapter 14 the way of love yeah, this is a fun fall chapter. In this chapter, Ataru's class is visiting a pear garden and Ten tags along. And Ataru, annoyed by Ten, flings him into a sweet gum tree in which he unwittingly plucks Kariko, a sentient sweet gum fruit. And Kariko's lover, Chojuro, who is a Japanese pear who is, was hanging on the tree right across from hers in the grove. Like, he despairs over the fact that Kuriko has been plucked, and he wants to go save her, but obviously him being like a pear, he can't break free from the tree. However, at that moment, Lum picks him off the tree and tries to show her to Ataru, but Ataru is flirting with girls, so Lum flings Chojuro on Ataru's head, and Chojuro becomes so stuck to him that his spirit possesses him. And Chojuro possessing Ataru calls her Kuriko, and that makes Lum mad, and after some confusion, Sakura eventually realizes that Atari has fallen under a spirit pair possession and wonders if this Kuriko is the key to resolving the issue. And as if on cue, Ten arrives and gives Kuriko to Sakura by sticking her on her hair, which causes Sakura to be possessed by Kuriko. And so Kuriko and Churcher attempt to embrace in Atari and Sakura's bodies, but Sakura instinctively stomps down Ataru. Her repulsion is stronger than Kuriko and Churcher's attraction. And so Lum <laughs> offers those Kuriko instead, but this time Atari's aversion to Lum keeps them apart. And they go running off. And while running by, you're noticing Mr. Fujinami, who are stealing pears from the garden to sell later, Kuriko accidentally sticks onto Ryu. However, much like with Sakura, Ryu instinctively kicks Ataru away as Kuriko possessing her tries to embrace him. 
And in yet another despicable act of child abuse on Mr. Fujinaga's part, he punches Ryu for acting femininely, which dislodges Kuriko, who ends up attaching to Mendo. And Kuriko and Chojiro attempt again to embrace each other in Ataru and Mendo's bodies, but are kept apart as Ataru and Mendo are locked in a tug of war between Ataru's hands and Mendo's sword. And realizing that no one in this group actually likes each other, or at least has a close bond <laughs> with each other, Lung instead suggests that Kuriko and Chojiro just both go what Ataru said instead. And that works out for them, but less so for Atari, who gets chewed out by Ansa Mark later in class. <laughs> That's a good summary. I like that. So this is a, um, I think this whole chapter is kind of in favor and leading up to the gag at the end, where Sakura just is saying um, there are no harmonious relationships of that sort among us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really shows how many conflicts between the group there are. Mostly with Ataru, mostly a lot of people very averse to Ataru. But there are some fun, yeah. fun gags in all the different ways the relationships get thwarted because of just how repulsed <laughs> the characters are with each other. <laughs> This is a this is just a fun chapter I think and like it, it it does kind of demonstrate that you could just kind of Takahashi could just kind of pluck uh pun intended there kind of <laughs> two inanimate objects uh bless them with sentience and wackiness and shoes so I just I just love the fact that it's kind of just about two pieces of fruit effectively <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like it could it could be anything. It could be anything in the world, but it's two pieces of fruit because that's where they are. Maybe maybe Takahashi was just uh, eating a pear that morning or something like that, and looked at it and went, "I've got an idea for a story." It's so wild. These are just sentient fruit. I mean, there is the implication that these are like spirits in, in possessing yeah. this fruit, but like <laughs> you gotta imagine, like these guys could have gotten eaten. Like maybe not the sweet gum fruit. You're not really supposed to eat sweet gum. Uh, fruit, but like the pear, Chojuro, like one was gonna feed it to Taru. Like that guy could have yeah. got eaten. He was he could have got eaten alive. So that's kind of horrifying to think about. It's kind of lucked out that instead the shenanigans happened instead. Uh, he could be together with his lover, but yeah, that's really funny. And there are so many great arc moments in this. I mean, we've talked before that Takahashi art is like really at its A game by this stretch, but especially with the mm. action in this chapter, like the running scenes and the combat scenes with characters like kicking each other, or like the stand up with Ataru and Mendo at the end. So many good action moments. Honestly, one really striking panel for me, or a sequence of panels, was when Mr. Fujinami punches Ryunosuke. Like, those are some good action beats there. And for some reason, I find it really striking, the panel just showing Ryunosuke react to the blow of Mr. Fujinami's punch. There's just something about mm. the expression she makes there, something about the way that's drawn, that communicates the impact and also just the shock of it all. And I also just love the way the action is paneled below that of Ryunosuke like doing flips in the air and bouncing out the tree to kick him back. Like, it's a really good action moment. It really is. And you can really tell that Takahashi is just enjoying these scenes that she gets to draw um, these action scenes. And she's gotten a lot better than the, in the last volume. She was still, we could still see that uh, her art was, it was good, but it was, she was still getting used to these sort of these kicks and punches and everything like that. And now she's doing things at different angles. 
mm-hmm. where Ataru is like basically fallen to the ground, his legs up in the air, and you see Ryonosuke running off into the distance, which I just think is a great panel. It's just very well constructed, yeah. uh, which kind of demonstrates how Ataru has not even fallen down and Ryonosuke is already like almost samurai-like, already left him in the dust. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. That sequence also where she, yeah, when Rinosuke possessed by Kuriko is like falling on Ataru and then like in midair she instinctively kicks and then we see, god, the shot of like when Rinosuke lands. That angle is so good too. Just so dynamic. Really good stuff here. I do like the fact that uh, Lum also says, uh, I've wanted to ask that for a while. Like Lum's kind of <laughs> observed that, uh, that, that Earth people, especially around uh, Tomobikicho, are just kind of very um, aggressive to each other. Like it's, yeah. it, there's no kind of like nice harmonious relationships, or at least not one that doesn't get interrupted by something. Yeah, there aren't a ton of super close functional friendships in Tomobiki. <laughs> but Lum is one to talk because arguably she also has fraught relationships with her friends from space too. Like oh, yeah, she definitely. has a very contentious relationship with Ron. So <laughs> And I think this also does kind of speak about the, the high school esque relationships as well, even even if you are, you know, friends with someone, that doesn't mean you're not going to, you know, get into fights with them and, you know, beat them up a little bit and stuff like that. Yeah. At least that's how it is in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> People, those kind of relationships are quite common here, I think. Yeah, no, it's, it's normal for friends to fight sometimes and give each other a bit of mm. tough love. But it is just so funny. I love the dialogue when Kuriko and Ata- is, is possessing Mendo and, you know, Ataru and Mendo are doing their, like... <laughs> hand clap sword kind of struggle that when she asks like Chojiro why must we battle each other and they're just so sad about it and then that's when they ask why does it <laughs> just such funny dialogue it's a funny sequence it it does end on a, on a slightly odd note it's just got cherry on the last panel as a kind of like uh, doing the um doing the epilogue and just says to this very day Ataru Moroboshi Ataru Moroboshi's head is weighed down by unusual burdens. I don't think that was particularly needed. I just get the feeling that Takahashi just wanted to draw Cherry. Yeah, I mean, Cherry only appears in two panels in this chapter, like at the beginning of the chapter and then here at the end. So she really is trying to work in Cherry. And remaining chapters of this volume, you know, she doesn't get a chance to. There isn't a whole lot of Cherry popping up. So, I mean, maybe she was aware she was going to go into a Cherry draught and wanted to give one last drawn of him in before that. <laughs> okay, next we've got uh, chapter 15, The Splendid Dance of Falling Leaves. Continuing on the fall team, this one starts off with Ten modeling some dolls of Ataru and Ultraman out of clay and using a robotic device shaped like an eye to bring his Ultraman doll to life. And the device basically gives life to inanimate objects and it allows them to combine together and move. And it acts and follows orders like a robot. And Torajima sees Ten's Ultraman doll and thinking, because of the way the face is shaped, he thinks it's a Taiyaki. So it steals the doll and Ten chases him all the way to Tomobiki High, where Ataru's class is cleaning the school grounds by sleeping leaves. 
And Torjima tries to eat Ten's doll, but spits it out when he realizes it's not food. And the device falls into a pile of leaves, where it gives form to a giant leaf monster after hearing Onsenmark instruct the students to rake leaves. And Onsen and the class question for a little while what the monster is at first, but after finding out what it is, you know, it being just like a creature created from Ten's, like, robot machine thing, like, they just decide to use it to clean the school grounds for them. But this plan is derailed by Ten, who decides to instruct it to attack Ataru to get back at him, and upon which the leaf monster chases Ataru and the class through the school, while also responding to principal's demand at one point to walk quietly. And they chase him out of the school, and Atara realizes that the Ten was the one who instructed it to attack him, so they get into a back and forth of instructing the leaf monsters to attack each other, which ultimately just makes the leaf monster attack both of them at the same time. So Ataru uses Ten's fire breath to burn the monster to a crisp, after which they roast sweet potatoes over <laughs> its flaming corpse. But it turns out the device is <laughs> fire resistant because it responds to Kosuke's ask to eat the potatoes quietly, and it creates a body out of the roasted sweet potatoes <laughs> to eat the sweet potatoes in a deliciously ironic oxymoron. <laughs> this is another interesting chapter that just kind of messes around with the idea of inanimate objects coming alive. Mm -hmm. This is less of a a spirit possession and just more of alien technology this time. But I I do like uh, a lot of the visual style in this. Yeah. And it really does tell you how popular Ultraman is in (laughs) Japan and has been a remaining constant force uh, of popular culture for four decades, possibly even more now. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is not the first Ultraman reference in the series. Definitely won't be the last. And Toriyama over in Dr. Slump at the same time, it's definitely working a lot of Ultraman references to his manga, too. (laughs) I think uh, Takahashi also just enjoys making these references and just enjoys drawing Ultraman when she gets the chance. Um, Obviously a bit of a fan there. Um, This, uh, I, I do like her art when she is uh, making inanimate objects come alive as well. Like, the the details of a leaf, which kind of almost looks like like a, a snowman or something like that coming to life. It's not yeah. something that you would normally think of something that comes to life, but it's still got two eyes, one of which is the um, is like the robotic device, which Ten yeah. uses, and the other one is like a leaf as the other eye, which I thought was quite clever. Yeah, black leaf. Like, it, it's a really good design. It's really clever way he designed the character that looks kind of like a, a goofy and intimidating monster all at the same time. I really mm. like it. And also just there's a lot of detail too to draw this leaf monster because it requires a lot of lines to delineate the fact that this thing is made up of different leaves. So I appreciate that effort too. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's anthropomorphic as well mm. is, um, is, is very quite clever the way it's drawn. Onsen Mark also has a kind of a running gag in this. He is the teacher, he pops up, and then uh, Ataru just knocks him out with a mallet. Yeah. And Lum goes, what was that for? And he just goes, oh, I just thought he'd appreciate passing out. Yeah, there's some fun uh, sometimes- <laughs> um, some more gags in these chapters. Like, not only that gag, but there's also a running gag where someone is mistaking Ataru for doing something, and then he he 
realizes, oh, that's not the real Otaru because he's too polite or he's too diligent, whatever the <laughs> the thing that is being mistaken for Otaru is doing. Like, we see it here in this chapter and then we'll see it later in the Kitsune chapter. So I think that's also a fun little recurring guy. It is. I do like the fact that Onsen Mark is, he's kind of used to this and not at the same time. Like when he puts his hand through the monster and tries and thinks that like it's someone in a costume or something like that. And it just leaves. He just kind of has this wacky expression on his face. <laughs> like he's going to pass out, but then like Atari just knocks him out anyway. Yeah. Sometimes I think that like Takahashi doesn't know what to do with Onsen Mark for the rest of the story. So she just knocks him out. <laughs> like, yes, these kids do have a teacher. Here he is. Now you can say goodbye. Yeah. Use him for the gags of him being like overwhelmed by something weird and then just push him to the side so he doesn't interfere with the kids' shenanigans. <laughs> uh, we've also got the the principal in this, um, who is actually acting for at least one panel like a principal. Yeah, he actually gets uh, mad rarely for this point yeah. of the story. Mm. Walk quietly in the halls. Uh, the the robot leaf monster obeys, and he's grateful for that. Yeah, he appreciates <laughs> that. Principal really does appreciate like diligent, hardworking students. You know. He does. He doesn't care if they're human or not, whatever, you know, it yeah. doesn't matter. <laughs> so long as they're obedient. Yeah. Okay, so next we've got uh, chapter 16, Love Knows No Barriers. And uh, this is this is quite a fun story, I think yeah. it's fair to say. This one is very, uh, is, is, is kind of a sweet story. Oh, this is a really sweet one for the Atari alum relationship. It really shows how Atari's feelings for Lemon's grown. I want to comment first on the title page, which I think definitely was in color when this was originally published in Stone and Sunday. You can tell by the shading here. It was, yes, yeah. that's right. Uh, and it's 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 often a big deal uh, when something is in color, or you know, when we say color, it was basically like a a um, a, a, sh a hue of orange and yellow. <laughs> yeah, looking through this chapter with the way some of the shading in this looks, I wouldn't be surprised if this was one of those partial color chapters. Like, it looks distinctly different in shading from previous chapters in this volume. So I... I can confirm that it is. Awesome. Because I have the uh, the volume, I have, like, the perfect color edition that Ooh, has this story in it. Nice. And after we summarize, I'll talk a little bit about that because there's some interesting differences there. Oh, I am so Which excited. Down. Awesome, awesome. But yeah, let's just dig into the synopsis of the chapter. So, Itaru and Tan, as they want to do, they're fighting at breakfast. There's a great gag where, like, they're fighting while eating, and <laughs> Mrs. Morboshi is saying, hey, please do one or the other, not one at the same time. So they finish eating and then <laughs> continue their fight. But while they're fighting, Ataru accidentally hits Lum on the forehead when he throws a rice cooker, at and that, you know, puts a bump on Lum's forehead. But they don't think anything of it at first. But then later in class, uh, they realize Lum has forgotten Herb Talk and can only like speak and understand her home tongue from Oniboshi. And so Sakura is called in to the classroom by Taro, you know, calling for her as he's quote unquote testing to see if Lum has really forgotten her speak. And Sakura diagnoses Lum with temporary amnesia and says it'll pass in a little while. But Taro takes advantage of the fact Lum can't yell at him. 
to hit on girls in, right in front of her, and that really upsets her. So Lum returns to her spaceship to work on something and doesn't come home to the Norwegian household or go to school and avoids it hard for a week and doesn't even respond to him when he calls out to her, which makes him really sad and worried. And one night, Lum is actually back in Natara's room working, and he tries to talk to her, but to no avail. And so finally, you know, he breaks down in tears and hugs Lum and apologizes sincerely, desperately wanting her to remember Japanese, to speak to him again. And coincidentally, at that moment, Lum has just finished what she's been working on, a math-like translator in the shape of a alligator or crocodile's mouth that translate Oni talk into Earth speech and Ataru's Earth talk into Oni speak. And so, you know, later, Sakura questions then, why didn't they just build this a translator to trust translate Lum's speech into Earth speak? And Tim says, oh, they lost manual. But Lum is thinking to herself happily <laughs> that, you know, this way, Ataru can't hit on girls with his, this mask on. So, you know, maybe she was being a little more sneaky than what she let on to Tim, <laughs> why she made the device this way. But either way, it's clear that Ataru would prefer wearing this mask to so communicate with Lum than not wear it and flirt with other girls. Like, he really just wants to talk to them. And this is a very sweet ending to the chapter. It is. This is a very... I can see why they would have chosen this uh, this particular col- uh, this chapter to, to do in colour, quote-unquote. It really does have some great art in here. Um, there's a few more kind of... There's some great interactions. And there's a, a few more characters than normal, I want to say. Uh, just because you've you've got everyone at school uh, and you've got everyone at home as well, so it's uh, it's kind of uh, got a lot of the main cast here, even if they don't have speaking or, or particularly active roles here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so at the start of this, I just really want to point out uh, just the the angry look on um, Mrs. Moroboshi's face is very reminiscent of Ataru's face when he is angry as well. You can really see the resemblance there. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, I just really love when Takahashi does that because you really see a lot of Ataru in his mum sometimes. Yeah. Like you can kind of see where he gets it from. Oh, absolutely. Ataru really takes after his mum in so many ways. It makes me wonder what she was like in her younger days. If she was like a lot more than Ataru and it's like just over age, she is kind of mellowed out slightly. And sometimes gets pulled back into to those wilder instincts. Well, you you can tell that um, Ataru's dad is definitely the um, is definitely a bit under the thumb and definitely the Mika yeah. in that relationship there. <laughs> no, he just buries his head in the newspaper and just tries to avoid the entire situation. Like it's throughout the start of this chapter, he just does not pay attention at all. He's just like, nope, I'm just reading my newspaper, not getting involved. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a wise, it's, that's wise counsel there, I think. Mm. Um, I do like uh, Onsen Mark's English here, where he just says, that's an awful lot of flap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is just the original English, that's all it is. He's just talking in English in the font, which I, I really like there. Yeah, good use of a different font to distinguish that, you know, in this context, he was saying, like, English in this context of like the characters in the room speaking Japanese like this is a hard thing to do in localization but I, I think that the point still carries across with the lettering here so I, I think I appreciate that choice I mean just to talk about the lettering I think Jimmy Lee did a really great job in this chapter because there's some really great lettering moments like when Ataru is 
yelling his Sakura, I love you. Like the font choice for that is really strong. And I especially love the way the thump, 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 thump of like Sakura, like just slowly walking into the classroom, <laughs> like just that line of sound effects, like slowly getting louder and louder in like this like line curve, like leading the eye to Sakura entering the classroom, the bomb guitar on the head, like so good. I thought just, Really, really striking lettering moments here. It, it is good. It's a lot of this is not only good editing, but you'll notice that they don't. In a lot of comics, sometimes they'll have like an asterisk, and then underneath they'll have an editor's note saying this was the original English, or this was originally in English, or this was you know this is in place for like an alien speak or something like that. But they don't need to do that because it's all obvious. Yeah. They don't need to add editorial notes during the chapters. They just have cultural notes at the end, which I just think is, um, uh, it just speaks highly of the translation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the one thing that is changed a little bit, and I was curious because uh, here they use windings mm-hmm. for when Lum and, and Ten are talking in their native tongue. Oniboshi-go, I suppose. <laughs> Onigo, I suppose you could call it in Japanese. I'm not actually sure if they actually give the, the, uh, the language a name. I don't think they do. I just think it's, that's how they speak. And, uh, and it's, it's a little different to how Lum's mother speaks, who usually yeah. talks in, in, uh, uh, in um, tiles. Yeah, Mahjong tiles. I'm trying to remember the Yeah, Mahjong, that's right. I got my. I was thinking go for some reason, and that's not go because they're just like big black and white pieces. Um, so the windings have been changed a little bit here. They've kind of been swapped around, and uh, some some symbols have been used in aid of other symbols here. Hmm. Uh, and one of the main reasons for that is that uh, there is a a symbol that is very popular in Japanese culture, uh, which is uh, the symbol that's used for a shrine or temple. Which is, it does look like a swastika, yeah, but it's not a manji, yeah, yeah, and that has been swapped out here a lot because that is a symbol that is used a lot, especially on maps mm-hmm. in Japanese. And so what they've done here is they've obviously kind of redone a lot of the windings, which is which is clever, and I can see why they would do that. But there are differences here, so they've kind of relettered a lot of this as well, which is interesting. Yeah. I do like when Lum gets serious, she takes, she just rips off her school clothes. She gets to her UFO and just rips off her like sailor suit and is just in her uh, traditional bikini underneath. That means she's serious about something. And I just, I just love that. It's just this unspoken thing that she does. Yeah. <laughs> like she tosses it aside with such fury and then it really gets mm. to work there. <laughs> this just really does tell you it's one of those fleeting chapters where it just does show that Ataru really does care for Lum. He doesn't yeah. want to hurt Lum and he is very apologetic uh, that he did this. Uh, Lum doesn't seem to care so much that um, she was accidentally brained by Ataru. No. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is kind of funny. It's, a, it's not out of character per se, but it is kind of, she's more worried about being late for school than the accidental uh, act of violence uh, that was set upon her by Ataru. Um, but it is good to see Ataru being completely apologetic and hugging Lum there at the end. It is a very sweet moment. Yeah, I mean, there's so many nice moments here where we're seeing, like, Ataru really 
does care about Lum's company and is feeling like really sad when she leaves and is concerned for her. Like, you know, even before she goes off to start work, when she just like leaves when he's like flirting with the girls, like he takes notice of that and he's like, huh, she sure gave up easily. Like he's concerned about her in that moment. She's like, huh, wait, what, where is she going? And this is one thing that leads me to this theory that like, you know, Ataru, a lot of his flirting is just posturing to, like, irritate Lum and drive her up. And at this point in the story, like, he cares all about Lum that, like, when Lum is not reacting how she usually does, it's like, he takes note of that and he takes more of an interest in her and how she's doing than other girls. And so we see throughout <laughs> this week, like, Ataru left the window open, like, because he was wondering, like, is Lum going to return? I gotta leave the window open for her. And he's worried about her in school. And when he tries to call out for her, he's, like, really sad that, you know, about the idea that she doesn't even recognize his voice. And he's so dejected about that. And it all builds up to him, like, just trying to... He's trying to put up his stain off his front when she's in his room working on her thing, and he's trying to talk to her. But like as it goes on, and as he becomes less sure that he she can understand him, like he he genuinely apologizing, like he he grovels, he bows to her, he really shows mm, humility. He's, he's on the floor. Yeah. Now he tears up. He's like crying when he hugs love. He just. He genuinely wants to communicate and talk to her, and he like cares so much. This is such a really good showing of the Ataru and Malaysia, about how much Ataru's feelings for Lum have grown over the course of the story and at this point, like how he really feels about her, how much he really cares about her. It's really great in that regard. I think the resolution of the chapter, even though it ends on a joke, is also a good indicator of that, because even though the mask is ridiculous, and even though it prevents him from, like, doing his usual flirting or talking to other girls, like, he chooses to still wear that mask in order to communicate with love. Like, that is more important to him above everything else. So, I think, again, <laughs> that shows how much he really cares, he really appreciates and values Lum's company and being able to communicate with her. And spend time with her. I think it's also uh, about the status quo as well. Uh, like, Ataru has just gotten used to a certain way of living. Mm. Taking the good with the bad when it comes to Lum. And if anything disrupts that status quo, then he's genuinely concerned and, and wants everything back to normal. The other thing I just kind of wanted to point out, I, I, I like his mask um, at the end, but it, it, it's during these pandemic times, there are a different variety of masks. And there is a one particular style of mask that does kind of look similar to this. I don't know if you have them in America, but they kind of almost look kind of almost like Duckbill-esque. Oh. Um, a lot of medical professionals tend to wear them. They're still disposable ones, but they seem to have a lot more room at the front uh, for talking or room for your lips or whatever. And this just kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Yeah, nice. Nice pull there. Yeah. So the other, the last thing I wanted to mention about this is that they they do say Japanese, but they also just say Earth Talk as well. So yeah. they they don't always just they kind of mix it up between Japanese and just Earth Talk, which I kind of like as well. Is that how it was in the original Japanese, or was that a localization choice? You know what? I could check if you'll bear with me. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll go. I'll go run and get that. 
Okay, let's have a look. Okay. So, yeah, it basically says Earth Talk here. Okay. Yep. So, it doesn't say Japanese here. Mm-hmm. It says Chikyo Go. Yeah. From uh, Bokugo. Bokugo to Chisayo? Chisayo Ko. Yeah. So, it doesn't say Japanese there. So, okay. they do say Alien Talk to Earth Talk there, basically, which is interesting. Well, honestly, that works out for the localization since, you know, yeah. if they don't have to change Japanese English, it's like Earth Talk in both versions. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a direct translation because earlier on in the manga, in both versions, uh, in the original Japanese and the in the uh, the translated version, uh, Ataru also says she's forgotten how to speak Nihongo, uh, in other words, Japanese. So yeah, they, they mix it up here between mm. Earth Talk and Japanese. That's just a nice little detail that I like. Yeah. Okay, now we're on to Chapter 17, Lover Thief. And, uh, part one. <laughs> this is uh, part one. Part one? Yeah, this is the first, this is another one of those uh, two-part uh, arcs that we got in this volume. But yeah, this is also, I think, the final arc featuring Karama, it seems. This is kind of the note she kind of retires out of the series. But it's a good conflict, because it plays a certain conflict with Ron, which is a good pairing for, like, two very obstinate women who are really uh, possessive of their bows, so... You know, I think good match, good pair up there. But yeah, so in the first part of this, like, Karama is upset at her crow servants for not finding her a mate and just wasting their time. But they claim that they've been using computer technology to find her the most gorgeous match in the universe. But of course, they're lying about this. But then they actually try this method and try implanting her case with patterns of men throughout the universe. And in like a matter of seconds, they actually come across a match, a mate for Karama that she falls in love with at first sight. And so we cut to Ron visiting Rey at her usual tree branch hangout in their fantasy pocket dimension, where she's brought him a bag of taiyaki and a box of takoyaki to eat. And Ron believes that her regular visits and her food goods are drawing them closer to each other, but just then Karama teleports the two to her ships for a furious hurricane, and Karama immediately comes on to Rey to Ron's annoyance, and she becomes absolutely furious when she learns that Karama intends to make a child with Rey, even if they're only spending <laughs> one night together. And before Ron can do anything to stop her, Karama uses her fan to blow Ran out of her ship, and she plummets down to Earth, and she crashes into Lum in the sky, who is trying to save her from falling by grabbing her by the skirt, but she ends up ripping the skirt anyway, and that causes Ron to bonk her head on the side of a building. But rather than be mad at Lum, Ron just cries and begs her for help, because, you know, she... It's at her wit's end. She doesn't know what to do to get Ray back. And seeing how desperate Ron is, Lum agrees to help. But after hearing Ron's story, uh, she realizes that Karama is involved, and Lum tries to shirk away. But ultimately, she's guilt-tripped into still helping Ron, because Ron threatens to commit murder-suicide with Ray and then haunt Lum as a vengeful spirit. Uh, so Lum goes <laughs> along with it after all. And so the chapter ends with Karama and the Crows feeding Ray as much as he wants as preparation for the big night, because as Karama puts it, a warrior can't do battle on an empty stomach. And as they try to save Ray's never-ending appetite, Ron and Lum race to stop them, 
Ron threatening to force Lum to raise Ray and Karama's child if they conceive one. Which Lum is like, wait, why would I have to do that? <laughs> why me? But yeah, a very fun, funny start to this storyline. I do, I do love this. Uh, Kurama is just such a fun character, uh, and and just so desperate here. She just wants to get laid. She wants to That's all she wants. It's a man, honestly relatable. You know, she just wants to. <laughs> <laughs> so my God, it's very funny. She's, I, I just, I just love the fact that she has no game. Mm. She, she leaves it up to her, like um. Her, crow, her loser crow goblins to try and find her a match and when they, she finds a match she she's got she's got no style she basically just resorts to kidnapping them and and the gazing and staring at them every time like they have such <laughs> they have such bad taste they have such bad judgment she had more luck with a dating app Seriously. <laughs> she probably uh, If only she could go. If only she time traveled 30 years in the future so she could use <laughs> Tinder or whatever. <laughs> She'd probably just get matched up with Ataru again. Because oh, you, know yeah. you know it. You know Ataru is on there with like 30 different profiles. Oh my god, yes. He probably has so many different accounts. <laughs> oh. um, you've got... Uh, Ray is drawn very very softly and very handsomely here like yeah. he's always drawn handsomely but um when they're in subspace mm. and they're eating taiyaki in the tree he's kind of got this wistfulness and this like the wind is blowing through his hair a little bit like that yeah and there's this there's this great panel where ray gets this serious look on his face because he can hear something coming the wind is changing and it looks like he's hugging Ran to protect her, but he's actually just grabbing the Taiyaki bag. Oh, it's so good. It really shows what his priorities are. Yeah, I love how yeah. handsomely Ray's run here in his human form, because it contrasts so well with just how goofy his tiger cow form is drawn. Like, it's just so cartoonish. <laughs> like, it's like Garfield level of cartoonish. <laughs> like, at some points. Like, it's very funny. It really is. <laughs> Uh, there's a kind of a sweet moment here where, where Lum does rescue Ran from, you know, death by falling yeah. out of the sky. Um, and, like, Lum is is genuinely acting concerned and is, like, willing to help her old friend out until she realizes that it's Kurama and then she just tries to bail, which just kind of, like, kind of shows that Lum is still a pretty shitty person and a yeah, pretty no. shitty friend. Lum is a good, tries to be a good friend up to him point. She has her limits. Man, the expressions she makes on this page, though, when, like, Ron is, like, telling her the story, it's so good. Like, the expression where she's like, hey, calm down, tell me what's wrong. That's a good expression of her, like, trying to be sincere. Yeah. Uh, friend. But then the expression of her, like, breaking out a cold sweat when she's, like, realizing, oh, crap, Karama's involved. <laughs> That's such a great expression. <laughs> oh. Uh, and yeah, but you do also really feel for Ron here. Like, she is, like, so upset, and she really does just turn to Lum as, like, I think you can believe that <laughs> simultaneously Lum is, like, her greatest enemy and her best friend. And so in this situation, yeah. like, she really feels like she's the only one she can rely on. She can actually talk to and turn on to help. Because when you think about it, I guess 
Ron isn't really close to anyone else besides them. I feel like they, she knows her better than anyone. And, you know, even though she was friends with Benton and Oyuki, she has even less of a strong relationship with them. So Ron, Lum is the person Ron is closest to. So it's very, very yeah. interesting and sweet. But man, like... It is. And, and like, Ron's personality faults are kind of Lum's fault. Like, yeah. you know, Lum has played a massive part in why Ron is so screwed up. And, and Lum just kind of continues to be a bit of a shitty person towards her, so... Yeah. That's kind of funny. I, I I always love their dynamic. Oh yeah, man! This there's such good art and uh, moments in this chapter. Like when Karama is blowing Ron away out of her ship. Like she literally blows her out of the panel in such a dynamic way. It's so good the way Ron is framed like outside of the panel borders. Uh, after we see like Karama has blown her with the fan like it's, that's such a good panel the impact of like ron falling on lum mid-air is such a good panel in terms of like communicating the weight of that action and the sound effect is really well done to accentuate that and then the action mm. of like lum trying to grab and save ron is so good and you really feel like the tension animal like he is actually generally trying to save her life there like it's such a good beat and then, of course, Ron's crying faces are very expressive. And also, I love the moment of, like, Ron is crying. And she's, like, leaning on Lum, like, off the side of this tower. Like, Lum is, like, standing sideways on this tower. And Ron is, like, leaning down into her. Like, she could, like, fall mm. off this thing. But she's, like, leaning on Lum. I think kind of it's a good visual to show how much she's, like, depending on Lum in this moment to support her. So, man... Such good art. Moments. It is. It, they are. It's fantastic art, and it's drawn at night as well, which means a hell of a lot more shading. Yeah. Um. Really, I do. I do love it when she when Takahashi does night scenes because she's so good at it. Yeah. It's so much atmosphere, like the city background in this establishing shot of just Lom just flying to Toby is so good. The way she has rendered these buildings and them being lit up, like. It's so striking visuals. I mean, the pocket dimension, the subspace also is just so beautifully drawn to just incredibly gorgeous art. And just married with such great comedic beats. Like, I love the beat where Ron is just processing the fact that Karam intends to make a child in Ray, and there's just a beat of silence <laughs> as she's thinking about it. It's just so good. Such good paneling and pacing. It is. The, the the pacing on two-parters is just usually so good. Like, And this is just the perfect two-parter here. <laughs> so next we're going to uh, Chapter 18, Lover Thief Part 2. Yeah, so we didn't get any Ataru in the previous chapter, so uh, she's fixing that a little bit at the start of this one, because Ataru is shown seeing one of Karama's crow servants hauling a cart full of rice bags back to her ship and learns that she has found her ideal mate. And meanwhile, back in the ship, the crew servants are becoming more and more suspicious of Ray because of his boundless appetite, but they're willing to let it slide so long as it all works out for Karama. And Ron and Lum storm in to confront Karama at that moment, and upon seeing Lum, Ray transforms into his pig cow tiger form to the horror of the crow servants, who would rather feign ignorance of this than try to prevent Karama from finding out the truth, uh, lest they have to continue their futile search for perfect mate yet again. 
So, as usual, Ray is trying to make moves on Lum, and that makes Ron suspicious that Lum is trying to get back together with him. And Ataru, who suddenly appears in the ship, informs Kurama that Lum and Ray used to be an item. But Kurama's undeterred by this and lures Ray back to her side of a rice ball and ensnares the others in a pit trap, causing them to fall into another room. Lum and Ron try to escape the trap and get out of the room while... The crow servants try to prevent Chroma from finding out about Ray's transformation as they walk to her bedroom, but it turns out that the pit trap in Chroma's dining room actually led to her bedroom all along. So, Lum realizes the crow servants have been hiding Ray's transformation from Chroma, but he transforms back and forth too fast for her to point that out to her. But while Lum is doing this, Ron has somehow managed to pry open the trap door to the to the kitchen and has been cooking a bunch of rice balls for Ray, thinking he'd be hungry. But as she's about to bring him to Ray, like she trips and falls down the pit trap, and Ray, in a shocking moment of selflessness, catches her instead of the food, and for the first time <laughs> ever in this manga, I think, calls her by her name. And this gesture, though, no, don't. Sweet is short-lived, as he immediately, like, kind of chucks her down and then transforms and then starts gobbling up all the rice balls scattered on the floor. And so, Karama, defeated, tired out by her bad luck, goes to sleep while Ray just continues guzzling the rice balls and calling out the Lum in her bedroom to everyone's annoyance and dismay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he just immediately jumps her and then eats the rice balls. And then he calls out to Lum while eating the rice balls at the end of the show. It's like, oh, poor Ron. Like, she's crying at this. That he's he still only has his mind on Lum and food. So, oh, she tried so hard to impress him. No, she loves him as a tiger cat form, too. Like, it just makes her so happy to see him eat no matter what form he's in. And I don't know, like, what deeper reason Ron is in love with Ray is, but it's clearly, unlike Karama, she isn't just attracted to him for his looks. There is something more about Ray that she sees in him that she is in love with. And that's a big difference between, like, Karama, who is so shallow and really only cares about the looks, and Ron, who is in love with this one person for very specific reasons. We don't quite get it, but we can respect it, I think. He's a very simple-minded person, but I think there is this... I do appreciate this rare moment that he seems to have actually formed a little bit of an attachment to Ron. Not a big attachment, but the fact that he did have this one moment where he did prioritize Ron's safety over the food I think that does show a growth in their relationship, even though, yes, he doesn't really dump her to, to go eat the food. But he he looked after her safety first in the moment. And I think that's an interesting thing, an interesting point of growth. Okay, now we're on to chapter 19, When Love Strikes. And it's a Shinobu story. And it's a, a great front page here to this chapter, just with Shinobu and Kitsune. Yeah. Which is just a, a, a lovely visage. And her sweater is really cute. I would, I'd love to have that sweater like with the candy sewn on it. It's really nice. And yeah, it's so nice to have a Shinobu-focused chapter after so long and one that introduces a new recurring character in Kitsune. And so this chapter starts off with Shinobu walking home from school and seeing a little fox being bullied by three 
big mean dogs. And so she tries to scare the dogs away from the fox, tries to the stick, and that doesn't work out. So instead, she takes a log uh, off a pile of logs and starts swinging that around, and that does the trick. Uh, and then Shinobu takes the little fox to a police box to help find its owners or its home. But the fox uses substitution and genjutsu, basically, to switch places with a Jizo Sachu while the policeman is still asking questions, which uh, causes the on-looking civilians a lot of confusion and concern. But the fox runs off to find Shinobu infatuated with her and sees that she is walking home from school with Ataru and thinks that they're a couple. And the next morning, as for a fox, she's uh, Shinobu walking to school with a flower while bemoaning having to do chore duty and also sees her get rushed at by the boss of Butsumetsu High, who she promptly uh, tosses over into the trash, but also in the process of accidentally throwing away a flower. And at school, though, Shinobu notices that that same flower she had just thrown away has now been based in the salon on Smart's desk, and also notices fox traps on the floor in the desk. And then she's called out to by who she thinks is Ataru, but can very clearly immediately tell is not, and it's the fox in disguise. And the fox tries to help Shinobu out with the classroom chores, but he just ends up making new tracks while wiping them away. And then the other classmates are creeped out by this and go to Onsomark for help, but he finds the fox's politeness more unnerving and un-Ataru-like <laughs> than anything else. And as the rest of the class fills up and is wondering what the deal is the principal brought by looking for his glasses and not being able to see clearly thinks Ataru is generally cleaning the floors by himself, uh, seeing Kitsune clean the floors. So he orders a round of applause for him. And just then the real <laughs> Ataru drops by and after some confusion attacks the fox to break its disguise and reveal its true form. And while the boys are suspicious of it, Shinobu recognizes it as the little fox she had helped and understands that it just wanted to repay her favor and asks, you know, tanks it and asks her to leave, but the fox leaves, but then immediately returns disguised as Onsen Mark, which no one seems to mind, even as the actual Onsen Mark is blatantly tied up, hanging from the ceiling right between Atara's and Lum's desk and is screaming, and Atara's like saying, no, shut up, imposter. <laughs> <laughs> so this, um, this, of course, is uh, is the folklore that uh, some kitsune, who are often known as troublemakers in Japanese folklore, uh, can change shape, uh, mm. shapeshift, and pretend to be people. Yeah. This is a, a very sweet and a very nice introduction uh, to the character of kitsune as well. He's very cutely drawn, uh, little fox. Very marketable, I think it's fair to say, because <laughs> there are quite a few... Uh, soft toys out there of Kitsune. Aww. And uh, it's, it is kind of nice to see uh, just Shinobu being sweet and not being too sexually harassed by Ataru in this chapter. Just, just only a little bit. No, I, I don't think she's sexually harassed by Ataru at all. Like, at <laughs> worst, like, he puts his arm around her, but it's even more in, like, a friendly way, not as, you know, uh, invasive as Ataru normally is, so... You know? That's true, yes. He's kind of on a better behavior here, I would think. He is, and I think that is because it's not an, an Atari story or a Lum story. Yeah. It's because it is a Shinobu story. Yeah, yeah. But I think Shinobu, you know, it's nice to get focus on her and, like, her kindness here and helping out this little fox and this fox, like, wanting to repay that kindness role. So, like, you know, really caring about her and being in love with her. 
I think it's a very cute little story, and then I think the follow-ups to this will get in future volumes so are also very cute. Uh, I think these are definitely chapters that have grown on me over time, especially as I've grown to really love Shinobu's character and what it represents in Yurisei Asura. So I think that, you know, I really uh, found a lot of uh, fondness and sweetness in this story. In a sense, it's like sweeter than a normal Yurisei Asura story, these kids in eight chapters. Uh, so that's also pretty appreciable. I think it's nice to give Shinobu kind of a win for once because of how like put upon she often is. Hmm. It is good to see her just being a normal, you know, more or less high school girl here. And just, yeah. you know, she has to go in early to do chores at the school. And Kitsune's version of shape-shifting uh, into Ataru and Onsen Mark, where he's he's still got the tail and still got the ears. And, and he's still diminutive. Like, wow. like, he's still short. <laughs> like, he's still obviously yeah. not. <sighs> it's a great visual. <laughs> yeah, he's as bad as transforming uh, as the Tanuki in that previous chapter, which is also a similar type of story. But like, this is uh, this is played for a little more for sweetness. It is, it is, and it's good to have a sweet chapter in Urusei Yatsura now and again. You know, it's it's not just gag a minute sort of thing. You know, well, this is still gag a minute, but it's still yeah, there's still a sweetness to it. I yeah. do like the fact that the principal has lost his glasses, and it's just and um, Katatsuneko. Is just wearing them. He's just wearing the glasses. He's just (laughs) clearly wearing glasses behind him, and no one points this out, and he doesn't. (laughs) The principal doesn't realize it. It's just very funny. Kanazaki wearing his glasses is just very funny. Like that as a location in himself. Especially when, like, he 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 asks everyone a round of applause for Moroboshi, and. Katatsuneko, who's still wearing his glasses, is clapping as well, yeah. right behind him. And I just, it's a, just a great visual gag. <laughs> and Shinobu's just like looking at Miniataru while like he's waving. And, and Shinobu's yeah. just going, everyone in this school is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, even the students are like kind of unsure of what, who are they clapping for. You know, they're all sweating and they're like looking at her like, okay, I guess we'll do this. The principal asked us to. But yeah, this is very funny. So next we've got uh, chapter 20. Youth rugby uh, hell. Oh my gosh. Now, uh, I think, AC, are we in agreement? This might be the worst. This is the worst chapter in this volume. And this might be one of the worst chapters in the series, right? Yes, we are in agreement there. Um, so, see, when I first saw this chapter, I went, oh boy, a chance to talk about rugby. I'm a bit of a rugby, <laughs> rugby fan, rugby tragic. So, And then I remembered what this chapter was about. And then I just went, oh shit, I'm going to have to talk about this, aren't I, on the podcast? Yeah, man. This look, we'll, this we'll, we'll skip over this one pretty quickly. It's very rough. Um, uh, yeah. So the first couple of pages of this, before we she goes back to Tomobiki, you know, okay. Uh, I do kind of like there are some good moments here. So let's let's just go through this announces quickly. Uh, so while yeah. bemoaning how big her breasts have grown at the public bad, you know, realizes she threw out both her bindings in the washing machine accidentally. But unfortunately, the clothes that she threw in the wash have been stolen because of a run of laundromat taps that have been happening recently. So that leaves her without her any bindings to wear as she's walking home. But as she's walking home, she's called out to by a sweet potato salesman who is, you know, calls her a lung lady when he's like propositioning her to, if she wants sweet potatoes. And she's like surprised here being called a young lady. 
doesn't usually happen to her. So, you know, she is so surprised that we're going by this time. She intimidates the salesman basically to call her that multiple times. And she's like so happy with this experience. And so the next day when Mr. Fujinami asks her like where her binding is, she says, I'm not going to wear it anymore. And because I'm get recognized with a woman without wearing these bindings. So, you know, Mr. Fujinami is really gross and awful about this. Uh, he makes a mm-hmm. very bad I hope it's just a joke of, of where he oils up his hands and says he's going to massage her breast to reduce her swelling. Uh, but because of the scuffle they get into because of this, the rest of the school is alerted to the situation and uh, the boys start scheming to take advantage of the rugby game they're going to play that afternoon to cop a feel of her breasts. Uh, and they pretend to act natural in class so she doesn't catch on. But the girls are wise to the boys' scheme, and they try to help a warm Ryanosuke, but she's just concerned about her breast getting in the way when she plays rugby and swings her arms and stuff. And the girls try to help Ryanosuke by giving her a makeshift binding out of, like, a cloth, but uh, the cloth is too short, unfortunately. So, as expected, when they play the game, the boys are using the game to chase after Ryu and cop a feel of her breasts, which Ataru does succeed in doing, and Ataru's mm. hoping alerts Ryu to their scheme, and she tries to get rid of them, but in his posturing about being a better than the rest of the boys in class, Mendo ends up giving her the ball again, and that puts her right back where she started. And then Ryu tries to fight them off, but her breasts are getting in the way of her being able to fight well. So Lum tries to help her by also groping her and saying that she's trying to help her hold on to them and give her support or whatever. Uh, but that just leaves her vulnerable to be tackled by the boys. And that includes Ataru, but Lum electrocutes Ataru, and that allows Ryu to break free for a moment, at which point she's drawn a binding by Mr. Fujinami off-screen, but she has no time to bind it on herself in the moment, so she instead uses like a lasso and rope to tie all the boys up. But unfortunately, Mr. Fujinami acts upset at Ryu for using her binding to fend off the boys in that way, and says he's not going to buy her another one. So the chapter ends with Ryu tearfully begging the boys to return her binding while they meanly refuse. And yeah, that's the chapter. Uh, and Ryu gets sexually assaulted uh, twice in this chapter. Or three times, rather. And it's mm. not great. It sucks. Uh, that like It sucks because, you know, at the start of this chapter, Ryu kind of realizes this validating thing of like when she is just, you know... At first, she's self-conscious about, like, a bigger aggressive groan. But then when she, like, is walking out in public without wearing her bindings, you know, at first she feels, like, a little, you know, uncomfortable. But she feels so valid and happy when she's, like, recognized as a woman. And then she's like, hey, you know, I I am feminine and that's, that makes me happy. And so, you know, that's that could be a nice thing for her, you know, that she, she could realize, hey, you know, I don't have to wear these tight bindings and, you know, I can be recognized for a woman just as, as I am, like, even wearing, like, just the normal clothes I wear. But then, like, because of this incident of, like, these boys, like, taking advantage of the fact that she's not wearing a bra to, like, assault her, like, that basically puts her in a spot, well, no, I guess I'm going to have to wear my bindings all the time because otherwise, you know, then... People are gonna try and sexually assault me, and uh, that's that sucks. That really sucks. That Ryu, like, has this chance, this opportunity to have like validation in her gender and her femininity, and being comfortable with her body, and that's just taken away from her by the boys in her badge being 
freaking creeps, and it really sucks and is upsetting. And I actually got yeah. Very this is just basically sexual harassment. The chapter. Yeah, and I mean, Yurisiatra is not shy of having characters. Some Ataru mainly sometimes you know get grabby with the girls, but in this context, especially, like it made me very upset, especially with kind of. You know, how personal Ryu's arc of, like, gender validation is. Like, the fact that it is just ruined for her in this way because, again, like, the boys in her class take advantage of her not wearing a bra to try and assault her. It's just so gross. It's just so mean and setting. And the fact, because it doesn't end on a win for you either. Like, it ends with her, like, no. tearing up where she's, like, trying to inch her way to get her binding back from these boys who are like refusing to give it back to her and Mr. Fujinami refusing to get another one for her so it ends in a really awful place for her it, it ends with like, she's like put in a really bad spot tough spot so that really sucks usually at least when the chapter ends like the perverted character is punished but in this case it's like Ryu is still getting the short end of the stick here and it's really awful for her and it really makes me a set for her yeah it's this isn't it's you read this chapter and you just kind of go this was written by a woman really and like japan does not have the best record with women's rights i'm just gonna i'm just gonna say that out loud right now and like i don't it just looks like it was so much worse in the 80s and before like in the Showa era, and it, it is quite upsetting, this chapter. And I just re- was just reading this going, I just really wanted this to be about rugby. I just wanted like a yeah. rugby chapter so I could talk about rugby. Instead, it's just sexual harassment. So let's move on, I think, from that yeah, chapter. Yeah, let's move on. This is, uh, we'll mm. re- reiterate, this is the worst chapter in this volume. Uh, maybe one of the worst in the series. Like, I can't. I think so. There aren't a ton of chapters, stories, and that I really don't like, but this is definitely one of them. This is this is top three, easily. But this is contrasted, <laughs> surprisingly, uh, what a whiplash into one of the sweetest chapters in the series. Uh, it's mm. kind of interesting. <laughs> this is sand, this bad chapter sandwiched uh, between two really sweet chapters, and uh, that this chapter is the Flying Girl. Which is a really sweet 10 chapter. It's basically 10 encounters, kind of this ghost girl named Kachori one day. And she is looking for her uncle's puppies because, you know, before she passed away, like, her uncle's dog had puppies. And he had promised her that she could hold them when they were born in the fall. Uh, but she got lost on her way to look for her uncle's house. And so Ten agrees to help her find her uncle's puppies if she agrees to play with him afterward. And they make a pinky promise. And so they go to Tomobiki to ask Lum for help. And then at that moment, like, uh, they realize, oh, yeah, she is a ghost. And Sakura has a great gag where, like, she basically is asking uh kotori like her date of death like she would ask someone her phone number if she just pops it out of nowhere so that's pretty good but yeah, yeah so you know she realizes that kotori is still lingering as a ghost in the world because she was looking forward to holding those puppies and that has prevented her from moving on so they decide they're going to help find the puppies for her so that you know they can help her move on and 
Yeah, like, even Ataru gets in on helping him genuinely sweetly, though he also has a slightly ulterior motive of also pretending getting introduced to an older sibling of hers, if she <laughs> has one. But, no, like, the entire class helps out to try and figure out, like, what her uncle looks like, what his name is, where the dogs are. And so they go on their way throughout time to find them, but then they find that the dogs have all been gone to different homes. They're all given to different homes. So, like, they end up deciding, hey, we'll go visit all three houses and visit all three puppies. And they end up finding them. But Katori, being a ghost, can't hold on to the puppies in her form. And so she gets very sad about that. But Ten allows her to possess his body. And so that allows her to touch the puppies. And they end up doing, like, some cute little sumo wrestling with all the puppies. And it's very sweet. And they visit all the puppies. But at the end of this, Ten is like, okay, now finally you saw the puppies. Now we can finally hang out and play. But at that moment, you know, because Hitori is kind of fulfilled like all... Um, you know, her last lingering desire, she is going to have to pass on to the next realm. And that makes Ten very sad that, like, she is breaking her promise. And, like, she's very upset about this, but everyone's saying, hey, you know, don't be re- unreasonable. Don't create new regrets for her. Just let her pass on. But Katori promises him that, you know, rather as a as an apology for not being able to play together like I promised, you know, for seven days, I want you to go to a rooftop at night and I'll give you like a little present. And tearfully, like Tori passes on to the next world is is Ten gently cries and it's a very sad scene. But they go to a rooftop that night and like they're waiting for Katori's gift and the gift turns out to be a shooting star, which like <laughs> it heads right for the Moroboshi house and it's a it's a lucky thing that Tadatsuneko catches it barehanded. Like Tadatsuneko, <laughs> power level in the series, probably one of the strongest characters, catch like a shooting star uh barehanded. But yeah, like basically Katori's gift is like every night for seven nights she's gonna send him like meteorites uh with tanky messages. <laughs> so it's a very sweet moment with also a bit of a comedic comedic uh twinge to it. <laughs> so This is a very sweet story, um that it kind of illustrates the fact that Ten, for all his blustering and, you know, and how he is kind of kind of very Ataru-esque uh, when it comes to the women, is still a kid. And he yeah. just wants to hang out and play with people, you know, and it looks like he's finally made a friend. It, it's kind of interesting to point out because Ten, like, is just often alone. And the only reason he teases people is because he's very bored. It's not like like Lum yeah. really takes care of him that much. He doesn't go to school. So, like, when Lum's in school, he's just kind of, like, floating around, like, kind of bored out of his brain. Yeah. I mean, Ten just doesn't have a lot of friends his age, especially since Kentaro at this point is not showing up in the series. So, yeah. you know, he's finally meets someone who's closer to his age and, you know, just wants to, you know, play with them. And it's like, it gets a little crush on her. And it's just a very mm. sad thing that she, you know, their relationship, their friendship is just short-lived. It's not meant to last. And, you know, they can't play as much as he wants to. And he also kind of has to accept, you know, and understand debt and understand that, you know, people go away sometimes in your life. And he has to come to terms with that. And it's like a, a very tough lesson for him, but a very real and it's very emotional and I just love the panels of him like tearfully crying when she passes on and 
Herm just like hugging Lum and Lum is also tearing up, sad for Ten too. Mm. It's just it's a very good emotional moment. It is. It's very sweet. And it's sweet that Ten gets a chapter like this as well. Because usually he is he's just an instigator of mischief and trouble and often violence. But in this one he's just he's just being a little kid. And I think that's that's very sweet. There are a couple of good gags here. Um <laughs> there the running gag of Ataru trying to knock Onsen Mark out, uh, mm-hmm. except this time he fails, and Ataru's just like, oh, I thought you might want to pass out. <laughs> so Onsen Mark is, is kind of wisened up to him this time a little bit more. That being said, after that, Onsen Mark doesn't really appear either. So uh, it's, um, it is it is very sweet. The, the meteorite gag ending is also quite funny. And just yeah. the fact that um, Kotatsu Neko is the one that's able to catch like a, a falling meteorite. Yeah. It's just such a Takahashi thing to do. It's like, oh, we're going to send you these deaths, like death from above, but it's okay because this ghost cat's going to catch it. Yeah. Oh, that's a great gag. Uh, this is a great chapter in terms of these emotional moments, but there are generally like some really funny moments too. Like <laughs> them, the Katori as Ten wrestling all the puppies is really funny. A lot mm. of the classroom gags are really funny. Like it's it's really good balance of humor and sweetness here. It is, and to that we come to the last chapter, uh, chapter twenty-two, yeah. which is Magic Realm Jungle of Terror. Yeah, and this has a really nice cover page, I like, of showing Lum and Boat a kind of tropical uh, adventure jungle exploring outfit and then a kind of wintry-like outfit with different corresponding backgrounds to match, which reflects this chapter very well as Mendo is showing the the class a South Pole octopus he has named Matsu Echio. And he's not lying about being a South Pole Optimist because he basically has an entire room in his estate that is like the environment of the South Pole and there's like an actual blizzard there and there are walruses there too. So yeah, like uh, they, they caught, they encounter Matsuchio, but he basically looks like a normal octopus that they've come to expect and see. And that, you know, makes Monsetio upset, so it runs off into the tropical room. And that uh, causes some problems, because in this environment, it turns out Monsetio kind of becomes a big monster, as they slowly find out. But also, you know, going to this tropical room, this is a big uh, problem for the gang, because there are a bunch of crazy wild animals that Mendo keeps here, like panthers and cobras that start attacking and killing. <laughs> a, a bunch of the class. Uh, so Alum manages to shock most of these guys away, but uh, slowly one by one, kind of like in a horror movie, they're like being taken away by Mato Chio. And there's this great fake out gag with like ink being mistaken as blood. But yeah, like Mato Chio in his giant form basically kidnaps uh, most of our main cast here. Besides Ataro and Mindoro and some of the boys. Like, Amatsuchio, also in particular, gets a little grabby with some of the girls. Particularly Ryunosuke. It starts, like, ripping her clothes off and then tries to do with Shinobu. Uh, but then Lum basically shocks Matsuchio and allows the group to break free. And then Mendo reunites with him and basically calms him down. But uh, the chapter ends with Matsuchio hooking into a little bit too tightly and maybe crushing him <laughs> a little bit. 
this manga, this particular chapter has its has some really good comic beats. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there's the... This um, all stuff this, is not good with the yeah, Shiro grabbing the yeah. girls. That sucks. I think the gag with the animals in the tropical room uh, are really funny. Yeah. And I, I think the art is really great with both this environment and the animals themselves and Masuchio in his, like, giant form. Uh, and, of course, the great fake-out gag of, like, the, the ink as blood is really good. So, you know, a lot. this is really strong in terms of art-wise, and there are some good beats here. But, yeah, again, I don't, I don't understand Takashi's interest, uh, I guess, in these couple of chapters here. It's some kind of tasteless, like, borderline fan service sexual assault stuff. Like, it's not funny. Yeah, it's like, just uncomfortable. She does do, like, like the fan service is fine, um, but the sexual assault isn't. You know? yeah. like, I, I know this is shonen at the end of the day. Well, it's mean-spirited at the expense of the girls. That's what makes it upsetting. Yeah, that's that's right. I, I do like some of the comedy here um, where, uh, like, Matsicho is just basically like a very emotional octopus. Like, he runs away yeah. after basically... Like, he can't do tricks, he doesn't vocalize, and he's not so, he's very average in the looks department. And then he finds this very insulting and just does a runner. Like, a, a crying octopus is just kind of a, a funny visual, I think. Um, but I do love my favorite joke, my favorite gag in all of this is when, uh, Kosuke. Kosuke is just is is basically just ripped away, and the boys run in the opposite direction, going, "Are you okay, Kosuke? We're on our way!" And they're just running in the opposite direction. And then, are you going to abandon a friend? Well, we don't want to be collateral damage. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but uh, I I just love any anything involving Kosuke is is usually a plus for me. Uh, the ink is blood here, and then the uh, just seeing his 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 face. Just being completely inked in the next panel is is very funny as well. Mm. Also, the way that they just try and grab any animal to give to Mendo, who says he's going to give them a reward, and it's just like Ataru just picks up a monkey and just says, "It's Matsuchio, can't you tell?" <laughs> <laughs> and the way she draws the animals is quite fun as well. It's just, it's just, yeah, the. The um the the tentacles, you know, ripping off, you know, high school girls' clothes and stuff like that. It's just not cool. Yeah. It kind of spoils it, uh, and even more so in the anime, if I remember correctly. Oh, um, but that brings us to the end. Uh basically there's some data files here. Shitaro and Ryoko, uh hidden fraternal love. Yeah, basically the idea behind this is that even though the Mendo sequins are often shown in contention, the idea of this data file is that they're actually explaining, oh, they actually do care about each other in their own way. They actually are a good combo. They're on the same wavelength in terms of some of the things they think. Ryoko gets envious of Mendo sometimes, and other people getting close to him. Mendo is possessive of uh, Ryoko and prevents, like, guys from getting close to her uh they mainly fight as a form of communication because they're siblings the siblings often fight and stuff so you know even though they're often shown at odds in this ser uh, series they they have a loving uh brother sister relationship i don't know if it's ideal uh in the way that the data file is saying but um <laughs> you know they have like a, a believable brother sister relationship i i would think 
But uh, yeah, this one I feel like um, is I can see where it's going for and like this analysis. But uh, I think it is a little bit of a stretch of like they saying that they have like the ideal versus relationship or like they have like a super functional one because they are like very antagonistic towards each other. So especially on Ryoko's part, I, I think that she is very willing to throw Mendo under the bus consistently. So, uh, I, but I appreciate what it was going for and analyzing their relationship. Yeah, they it, these data files are kind of interesting because they they point some interesting things out, but I still think that more often than not they just miss the conclusion completely. Like they just can't stick <laughs> the landing. Yeah, like they I think they're looking for depth where depth doesn't really exist in some of these characters. Well, I think. Uh, I think there is something you can say about the dynamic of Mendo and Ryoko and uh, mm. the way that there are odds in an interesting way, because I do think like the conflict between them is, is interesting. But I think like, I th- and I do think there are shades of like, it is clear that Mendo does care about his sister. Uh, and I think that there is, Ryoko does care about Mendo to an extent, but like I think, like this, the, the ultimate conclusion saying that no, they are they're a perfectly functional, loving relationship misses the mark of it. I think that it's a little more complicated with that, and it really is kind of ignoring some other aspects of their characters of like why they act as selfishly and narcissistically as they do, and then why that puts them at odds consistently, and then the few times where their interests are like their interest in uh, the what the other is doing in line or comes into the form of something protective or more sibling like yeah i think um i think their relationship is what your average your average japanese joe probably thinks what super super mega rich siblings would act like <laughs> if you know if if they had like unlimited money this is how like the the upper crust would act as yeah. siblings Minus uh, the explosions and the pitfalls. Yeah, I think Ryoko's main, like, like main motivator, basically her mo in life is just to be entertained because she's just mm. bored. She's yeah. just constantly bored all the time, so she just wants to create mayhem just as a form of entertainment. Yeah, uh, and then on the last page we have uh, the count column. Yeah, uh, and- the number of barehanded sword snatchers. And as we talked about in a few chapters in this one, especially the one with uh, Kuriko and Chojuro, uh, you know, there are a lot of sword snatches in the series, and this count column is about the, all the times that characters do barehanded sword snatches, uh, which the count column points out wasn't always the case. That uh, didn't always catch Mendo's sword with his bare hands. Before in earlier chapters, he would just like run around or jump out of the way. But over time, like mm. he kind of grew some skills and is able to pull off over the course of the series thirty-seven uh, barehanded sword snatches, which is pretty impressive. And then Mendo's sewing glasses, Scott, are also noted to be other very like notable partitioners of sword snatching too, probably because they serve Mendo, so they probably have experience with sword play. So that's pretty mm. interesting. It is. I thought it would be more than 37, I gotta say. 
Yeah, I think the interesting thing about this count column uh, consistently is that it points out like recurring gags in the series that you think there are more instances of than they actually end up being. So it always is surprising. Yeah. But I yeah. suppose if it's one per chapter, like thirty-seven is still quite quite a swath of them. But um, yeah, I think towards the back half, uh, Ataru starts using hammer space a lot more. Yeah, and just you know brings out a giant mallet to block the sword rather than catch it in his hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so look, this is a, I think in uh, in conclusion, this is a pretty good volume. Um, yeah. It had a lot of sweet, a lot of sweet chapters, some really funny stuff, um, but it was just spoiled by a couple of things and, and one chapter in particular. Yeah, it's like, there were a lot of good chapters in this world, like a lot of highlight perhaps best of the series chapters in these volumes. And then there's also one of the worst chapters in the series in these volumes. So (laughs) it's unfortunate uh, that there is kind of a little bit of that mixed bagginess, but I think overall, I would say the, the really great chapters of this outweigh that one bad chapter. So I still say that these are these were overall very enjoyable. Uh, I definitely think we're or really are in prime years the author in terms of like great storylines, great art, um, and just this feels like you know where's the author firing on all cylinders for the most part. So I'm looking forward to just continuing on. And we got we got like some good character introductions in these volumes with the Spice Girl gang with the Kitsune. Like you basically rounding out pretty much all the recurring characters in the cast now. There's only a couple more towards the very end of the series you have yet left to meet. Yeah, the very, very end, yeah. We're really uh, staying the course here. I, I'm looking forward, you know, we're now in the double digits of these omnibus releases, so I'm looking forward for the future volumes, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're over halfway into the series at this point, so a lot left to we look are, forward yeah. to still, but yeah. And with that... Thank you very much for listening to Lump Squad episode nine. So it's, uh, it's been a great time. This yeah, one, yeah. Uh, in case in case you couldn't tell, uh, was actually recorded over two sessions. <laughs> yeah, a month apart, uh, over a month apart, I think was the yeah last one. So yeah, but this is also probably one of the longer ones we've done too, if uh, we count the. Uh, the total length of the discussion, but I think you know, considering what chapters we talked about, uh, I think it was definitely warranted. And I yeah, think so. Yeah, I just hope you guys enjoyed it, and you know, I'm looking forward for to us continuing our coverage of uh, the future volumes when volume yeah, eleven we'll drops. Certainly continue that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I am Andrew AC Yoshimura. You can find me on Twitter at prodtally. And I also do another podcast called Game Life Balance Australia. We're still dropping episodes intermittently uh, and quite drunkenly, but uh, that's <laughs> half the fun. And uh, where can we find you? You can find me at Lamaramayasha on Twitter. It's Lamaramayasha on a variety of places like Animation Revelation and Analyst. Wherever there's a Lamaramayasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on onnetcomer.com. we got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out, so look forward to more on there. And you can also find on all.com the other podcasts I do, mainly Manga Mavericks, the show where we talk about manga as a medium and as an industry. We interview guests from the industry. We discuss and do retrospectives on various series, report on news. It's a show where we just gush and discuss everything there is about the world of manga. And we've been doing a lot of great episodes recently. 
that I'm really excited about. Looking forward to you guys listening to like one of the most recent things that uh, we recorded at the time. You're listening to this is uh, Yona of the Dawn podcast, which I really enjoyed doing. And uh, we just have a lot of great podcasts in the works uh, coming up soon. So look forward to more stuff on there. And uh, you can follow Manga Rise on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks. And you can also just find that on every podcast platform of, you can think of. Uh, we're on Apple <laughs> Podcasts and Spotify, Stitcher, all the works. And in addition to that, I will go into Lone Squad Pugs in a bit, but you, if you like the art that I do for uh, my podcast, the art I make in general, illustrations, animations, the like, you can find that on my Instagram, Asset Artworks. But yeah, as for Lone Squad in particular, you can follow Lone Squad on Twitter at Lum underscore squad. You can follow us uh, on Tumblr, lovesquad.tumblr.com, and you can also find our podcast on all.com.com. You also find us on pretty much every podcast on Four Points. Like, like again, we're on uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you can find podcasts, we're there. So look forward to keeping up with us, following us for more great versus the edition on our platforms. And, you know, if you want to send us any feedback, email us questions, uh, comments, what you love about the series, what you would love to hear us talk about on the show, you can email us at lumsquadpod at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear you guys' feedback and get your suggestions and hear your reactions to the show. And we really would appreciate that uh, interaction. And if you yeah. would like to help support the show, help us in producing our episodes and uh, paying for hosting costs and material costs and the like, you can support us over on the Magnarines Patreon, patreon.com slash mongarics, which Love Squad follows under the umbrella of. And, you know, we have a lot of tier options that you can put support to, like every dollar helps. And, you know, we have like an early access tier for like early releases of our podcast, including Lone Squad episodes at the $2 tier. And so like when an episode is done edited early, it'll often be up there for sometimes uh, quite a while before the public release date. <laughs> so you can listen uh, and look forward to that on there. Um, and then uh, we also have a $5 bonus uh, pod tier, which every month for at the $5 tier, we release a special podcast for patrons uh, exclusively. And uh, we've been doing a lot of cool stuff uh, recently. Like recently, uh, one of our bonus pods was actually a special thing that me and V-Lord and Sakaki and Colton all recorded in person. Oh, wow. For the first time ever. All of us recorded something in person together uh, when we visited Colton uh, over the summer recently. And it was a really cool thing. And we basically what we did is we watched Dragon Ball Evolution uh, because Sakaki hadn't seen it before. And um, we recorded the podcast afterwards as an autopsy of our of our thoughts on it and it was a lot of fun uh, a lot of fun yeah we, autopsy is right on that one uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you did that to yourselves that's uh, what i'm yeah. gonna say i had a blast uh, just seeing Sakaki <laughs> react to it seeing people's reactions to it as you we were watching the movie and live tweeting that that was a fun experience uh, so yeah look forward to that podcast and we have a lot of cool other bonus pods we have up right now like we're doing a podcast uh that is going to profile like different manga magazines in japan and we're doing that as our bonus pod for august and we also have like a continuing series of bonus pods in which colton and doctor are reviewing saint seiya the manga for the first time going at it two ones at a time 
So they're almost at the end of the series. If you want to check in on their feelings on the series, another classic 80s manga, definitely uh, check that out on our Patreon at our Five of Our Tier. And again, just any support you can show our way really helps us to continue producing great podcasts and getting them out there, you guys. But yeah, I mean, once again, thank you for listening to Lum Squad. And we will see all you darling listeners again in our next episode. Bye-bye. Will indeed. Bye-bye.